From St. Louis, Missouri, this is Strangers to Fiction, a podcast about documentary storytelling. My name is Bill Streeter. And my name is Jacob McIndoller. And this week we watched the critically acclaimed 1994 documentary, Hoop Dreams. It begins with a game, with a basket and a ball. It becomes a journey of heartbreak and hope. From city streets to the brink of fame. The amazing story of two boys and two families struggling against the odds. My mother, God bless her, she's always sending me to America. You can make something of your life. Against the system. You have to realize you can make their team win. To make a dream come true. All I ever dreamed about was playing in the NBA. People ask me, will I remember them if I make it? I tell them, will you remember me if I don't? Hoop Dreams, an extraordinary true story, a unique motion picture experience. So I wanted to start this. I told you I want to start by reading something here. Um, yep. I mentioned in the beginning that this is a critically acclaimed film, but I don't think even calling this critically acclaimed does it justice. So I want to just read directly from the Wikipedia page for this movie. And, okay. you know, like when you go on to watch a, movies on the Wikipedia page, they have the reception section that kind of tells you how the critics responded and audiences responded. So I want to read directly from that. And it okay. says, the film was universally acclaimed by critics. Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert gave the film two thumbs up on their show, which both with both critics naming Hoop Dreams the best film of 1994. Now, this is from off, you know, from off the page, but this is 1994 that gave us Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump, and they named this the best film of 1994. But continuing, Ebert in his initial television review proclaimed, this is one of the best films about American life that I have ever seen and later called it the best film of the decade and one of the great movie-going experiences of my lifetime. Now, Roger Ebert is kind of the most, he's like kind of a darling critic. A lot of people, you know, really admire his work and look to him as a, you know, as an authority. These days, he's one of the most admired critics. I think back then, though, I don't think he had as much credibility. <laughs> like he, I mean, now that he's dead and he's had a longer, much longer career uh, than he had at the time, he was, he was, I think a lot of people, he kind of rubbed the wrong way, actually, back then. Okay. I remember a lot of people hating on Roger Ebert. Well, either way, I mean, he's he's pretty admired nowadays. Now. And, nowadays, yeah. yes, absolutely. And he calls this basically one of the best movie-going experiences of his life, the best film of the decade. So do you think that it holds up to those uh, those reviews? Uh, No, not really. No? I no, I don't think so. Okay, tell me why. I'm heartbroken um, now. <laughs> I, I liked it. I yeah. mean, I'm not saying I didn't like it. I don't think it, I mean, I don't think it's one of those movies that sort of has stood the test of times in terms of what 
I don't think people, I mean, if it was the best movie of the 90s, I feel like that would, that this movie would come up in conversation a lot more these days. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't, at least around in my circles. <laughs> like, it's just like, I mean, I don't hear a lot of people talking about hoop, hoop dreams anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, or even in like movie retos, movies about the 90s. Maybe it's because it's a documentary and there's that what stigma. I, I suspect because it's a documentary and I think they don't come up Maybe. as much. You know? It's definitely, I would say, I would put it, I mean, if you're going to limit the documentaries, I would say it's probably one of the best documentaries of the 90s, for sure. Well, the uh, going best back movie to that, for the 90s of the 90s, though, I don't know. I mean, going back to that, the Wikipedia, the film was ranked number one on the International Documentary Association's top 25 documentaries list. So it ranked number one on there. I think it was also another, some other one, it was ranked number one. As, what was that list that we started out with doing a podcast with? What was that was the well, I think that was Morgan current Spurlock. TV. Yes, Spur, Morgan Spurlock's list of top twenty-five. Do- and what, what did, it must have been on his list. I'm yeah, I'll, I'll look it up. But uh, what do you think didn't stand the test of time? The film itself does. What what it, what I meant was it didn't by it didn't stand the test of time. I just don't think it's it has the same reputation as other big movies from the nineties does. You know, like people don't talk about hoop dreams in the same way they talk about. They still bring up Pulp Fiction or they bring up, you know, yeah. all these other movies from the 90s, you know. So number th- one, number one. Huh. number Yeah. So this also on Morgan Spurlock's list. Uh, the So if you go back to the beginning of our podcast, we started with a, a list yeah. of 50 documentaries to see before you die. And we just kind of started at the bottom at number 50 or 49 um, and this is number one on that list as well so huh. so just to set up the story a little bit film follows two young black boys who are basketball players that live in inner city chicago uh and they are recruited to go to a basically a white a white high school i mean Saint it's not joseph's. exclusively white but it's in a, in a whiter area Saint joseph's i forget what yeah, town Saint, it was in. Saint joseph's did they say what town i don't remember exactly and the film follows them. The film was shot over the course of five years. Follow these boys as they're recruited into the high school and then as their high school basketball careers progress. And they're both obviously to be recruited. They're also they're big basketball stars for their age. You know, they're they're hot prospects. And follows them all the way through that from when they're very young until when they graduate high school. Westchester, Illinois. Westchester. Is that where is that? Is that near they, I think they said it's like about an hour and a half. Or 90, well, 90 minutes is an hour and a half. I think it's a Western suburb, but I can't, I'm looking it up right now. Okay. And you see them, you know, they, in the beginning, they get recruited and then they're followed. Show them they have like an hour and a half, I think, journey every morning. Because they said it was a three hour round trip to go from basically. That's because he's going to public transportation. Right. Like if he was driving, it would probably be like maybe 45 minutes or something. Right. But just their travel time, you know, to get back and forth to school. And they live in, so I know one of the boys lived in Caprini Green, the kind of infamous Chicago housing project um the other one i don't remember the exact name of the neighborhood now um, I, I we should say you you're from chicago i mean you lived in chicago yeah i lived so in chicago for a long time he lived in one of the uh southern southwestern neighborhoods there's two neighborhoods in southwestern chicago and he was in garfield park i think i'm gonna look it up i'm pretty sure he lived in garfield so park. william gates lived in caprini green cabrini yeah what's that brini cabrini cabrini brini br have i been saying that wrong my some- entire life Caprini. You're saying Caprini. It's not like oh, Capri. It's you're, you're Caprini. Right. I honestly always thought it was Caprini. That's Green. hilarious. Oops. Well, I had a friend for a long time who thought that um, O'Hare Airport was actually O'Hara Airport. O'Hara like he Airport. He kept calling it O'Hare. I'd go like, what are you talking about, O'Hara Airport? It's like O'Hara Airport in Chicago. I go, no, that's O'Hare. 
So I was trying to see here where um, Arthur grew up. I think it's Garfield Park. Garfield Park, Park yeah, yeah. West Gar- Garfield Park. Yeah. Um, so I don't know the... Just still a bad neighborhood, really. Yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's certain parts of... Chicago's very gentrified these days, um, even now. This is almost 30 years. Yeah, well, and this film was more shot than in the early years. 90s, right? Followed them in the Started in 87 and, like, I think wrapped up around 91 or 92. Mm-hmm. So... Was it Five that years? Okay. 92, yeah. They start in 87, yeah. They were oh, okay. little kids at the beginning. I knew the film was released in 94. I thought maybe it had wrapped up in like 93 or something mm, like that. Maybe. But. I forget. Yeah, Chicago, I mean, I was telling you where we're finishing up the film. That Chicago's a lot different now in a lot of ways. Um, those neighborhoods probably haven't changed very much. Like Gar- Garfield Park probably isn't that much different now mm-hmm. than it was then. But for the most part, Chicago has like a lot of Midwest, like uh, not unlike St. Louis, on uh, most Midwestern bigger cities, it's, they're very racially segregated, mm-hmm. which is a lot of people don't realize that because I think I think people just un, uh, wrongly assume that Southern cities have all the ba- have uh, have all the uh, uh, racial problems in in the states, but it's really everywhere. And the Midwestern states have their own particular flavor of like kind of racial segregation. Yeah, and in my experience, it's a lot more physically segregated. Physically segregated. Um, than, than yeah. like and there's in certain the neighborhoods are like just black neighborhoods. Right. And certain neighborhoods are just white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And that still exists in Chicago. And it still exists in St. Louis in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. You yeah. Know? Which may sound weird to maybe somebody from England or Germany or wherever. Maybe not. I don't know. But I'm just. So it's those neighborhoods where he grew up. It's, it's probably not that much different. Chicago was a bad place to live in mm-hmm. the period that this stuff was happening. This was, would be kind of during the crack epidemic. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you had the eighty, all the all the eighties, like crime was pretty high, and had I don't think it was sort of the end of the Harold Washington era in Chicago, which was who's a. Chicago's first black mayor. He died in 87, so died in office. But not, I mean, he was actually a great mayor, but and did a lot of things that sort of set Chicago up to recover later on. But um, at the time, it was still suffering from policies that were put in place in the late 70s and mid-70s even, you know, so, or probably even decades before that. Just, I, I don't want to get deep into sociological <laughs> history I know, there's of a lot St. you can talk about like, here, but... But it was just because of a lot of things. Chicago was just a rough place to live mm-hmm. in the late 80s and early 90s, even, which is hard to imagine now if you've been to Chicago. It's a very vibrant city and very relevant city mm-hmm. in a lot of ways today. And it still has problems, but not like then. You know? Right. Um, so. and, and these boys both come from you know, these... Some uh, of the roughest neighborhoods yeah. in, that, in a rough city. Right. You know, so... And I remember, and it's really interesting that, you know, they, I don't know how to say this exactly, but just to see it from their experience, like when Arthur first goes to St. Joseph's, because both of the boys go to St. Joseph's. But when he first does, they interview him and he's like outside and he's just like, he's like, I never been around like this many white people before. And he's like, and I, when I go back home, people talk like me and they understand, I, they understand me. And you get these two boys that are- It's a are, culture shock. Yeah, it's a culture shock. Yeah. And it's like a fish out of water situation for them. You know, obviously a, a, a good opportunity you know, to get an education. But then as the film progresses, you've got the two boys to go. And then one of them is forced to leave. I think even in the first year, was it the first? Yeah, he didn't even make it through the first year. Yeah. And Arthur. Arthur is forced to leave yeah. and go back. And then what's the other boy? William. William, Arthur and William. Yeah. But then William continues through, through the four years and graduates from St. Joseph. You know, I said, I mentioned this to you before, earlier, but this was originally intended to be a 30 minute PBS documentary. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to even look up any of the origins of this film or right. any, or even who the filmmakers were. So, 
Yeah, you just, yeah. we should say you just finished yeah, watching Yeah, I just was this. finished watching <laughs> Well, again, I mean, I saw it years yeah, ago. Sure. But Same for me. I saw this years ago, and I just I really this week saw it in the nineties. You know? Yeah. So it was. It it did kind of. I mean, when you've seen something that long ago, it kind of feels like seeing it for the first time. I guess. Yeah, but they did. So they started it as a thirty-minute PBS documentary, and it was originally intended to be just a profile of one playground, like one inner-city playground where kids played basketball. And then as they, you know, were developing this, they realized there was a kind of more interesting story that these boys are being recruited. So they'd continue to follow it. And they, in the beginning stages, they filmed, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was just a certain portion. You know, they'd go out during the summer and they would film like seven days or 10 days or something like that with these boys to see what's going on with them. And then they developed a kind of demo reel of the film, of the product, you know, what they were working on and were able to raise additional money from investors so where were the, these guys from do you know i believe from chicago no but i mean did they work for a media company did they work for channel 11 or something or they channel 11 is the public television station in chicago there's the um i don't know how to pronounce it but the f- production company is cartemquin films cartemquin something like that oh um that that's their production i feel like program. i knew their the bio of these guys before but and i just don't know it now well steve james is the director he's the director of this film and he's done other documentaries he was nominated uh he did one called abacus which i've never seen which apparently is about this small bank in chinatown that was the only bank that was like during you know when they had the too big to fail you know when the banks were collapsing and the government bailed them out this was the only bank that anybody actually faced criminal charges because they were deemed something like small enough to fail. Huh. And, and it's a film about that. And he was nominated for an Oscar for that film. Before this film or after? No, this is after. So this yeah. was his first like first big thing that he did. Yeah, this yeah. that one, that Abacus was 2016. So it was quite a bit after this film. But yeah, Cart- Cartum Quinn Films. Hmm. Nonprofit production company yeah, located I wish in I had Chicago. Time to like look this stuff up before we start talking about it because I know. Um, I think that they did a great job with the. I mean, it's amazing that they ended up putting together the funding that they could follow something as long as they did. Mm-hmm. And I would like to know the story behind you know how they did that because it's not easy like keeping a project like this going for more than a year, mm-hmm. you know. And it's quite an achievement in terms of fundraising, just the, the fact that they were able to keep shooting for that long. You know, mm-hmm. they must have had very patient investors. Well, like I said, I, they had some investing in the beginning and they shot for like two years and then they put that, they cut that together into something and then they took that out to ad- additional investors. And it's an interesting way to make a film because this one obviously draws, to me, draws parallels to the film Boyhood. You know, Boyhood, um, not a documentary, but a film that was shot over the course of several years Mm -hmm. as the actors aged. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of this is a documentary shot in a similar style where it follows them. You see these kids grow up. Yeah. Yeah. You see them like, I mean, they're they're little boys when they first start in the film. Right. They're coming out of middle school and they're going into high school. And then by the end, they're sort of like burgeoning young men. And they're they're there each step of the way. So you watch them get older. There's and the film's basically broken down into in, into acts that are structured by the year that they're going to school, right? So freshman year, sophomore year, senior year, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, so a lot of patience too. I mean, not just patience to raise the funds for it, but just to continue to follow up on this film. You know, you got the you got the first year, you collect some footage, then you got to go back out the next year, and whatever is happening or going on in your life, you got to make time to go yeah. do that. And yeah. uh, it's a big project. And they were there for every major event in these kids' lives. You know, it seemed like like they. 
caught like all the big events, they, mm-hmm. which is not also just from a production standpoint, following people in real time. That's not an easy thing to do. You really have to keep tracks of mm-hmm. your and keep tabs on your subject. Um, over a, the long haul to sort of keep I don't know if these guys had kids or not but like your own <laughs> kids are going through all these things while if you're following somebody in real time like that yeah I don't remember where I read but I did read something about the exact number of days that they filmed each year hmm. so they would go out like I said I think the towards the end of the film they were able to follow them a lot more because they had raised fund funding they had I think it was up to like a hundred days in the last like the last season or the yeah, the last year of high school. Yeah. That they, they followed them. The cool thing about it is that you do have like actual, I mean, there's the long arc of the film, mm-hmm. right? The long story arc from the beginning to end, but then there's like all these little mini arcs. Yeah. And the tournaments and things all through it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the redemption the, of Arthur's father. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's a and little mini arc. And then like he kind of, it looked like he was still struggling, you know, at the end there, you know, because they had split up again. Mm-hmm. You know, you get like a, a, a flavor of these people's lives for this whole period and you know i gotta wonder like how something like this will follow you around for the rest of your life you know and i and i gotta wonder like how it affected their lives after this and you know it did Mm -hmm. like they one of them went off and started a clothing line called hoop dreams or something i think but i would like to know from them did did you ever find to see if there was any um did you ever look around and see if there was any like follow-up interview with with them recently in recent years so i'll give you yeah because i think this film when you watch it it prompts you you want an update on these on these guys so i'll give you a little bit of what i know um you're right arthur did launch a clothing line spoilers neither of these boys makes it to the nba they're pretty good basketball players they both end up playing division one basketball which isn't clear in the film but eventually they both play division one basketball arthur started a clothing line uh i think he's involved in some other things too but seems to be he was also part of a film that was called hoop reality which was a a kind of a follow-up to this film that showed you know what what the effects basically your question what the effects were i haven't seen that though i do know that the filmmakers steve james and the other filmmakers of this gave the boys both $200,000 from the, the the profits from the film. Arthur, from what I read, bought a house with that. William seems to have lost the money. William, however, has gone on to become a pastor. Yeah, I, saw, yeah. I read that. Yeah. So he was a pastor at Cabrini Green and then eventually moved his family to Texas. So the boys both seem to turn out pretty well. And it's really interesting in this because you see, you know, the, you have the one kid who has to go back to his regular school and the one kid who stays in the, you know, at the, the nicer school out in the suburbs. And they both experience different ups and downs, but I arrived somewhat at the same place, I think, yeah, in life. In life, yeah. yeah both, They're both again, in their late 40s now, right? Yeah, they would be a bit older than me. I think we said we were saying in between our ages, so they're probably in their late forties. Forty-eight. Yeah, probably around forty-eight, something like that. Um, but they both have children and families. Uh, they're are, both probably uh, older than their parents were when this film was made. Oh yeah, I'm sure. And they have kids. So w- William's son followed him uh, in basketball and went on, got a basketball scholarship uh, to, to some university as well. So they both seem to have gone on to live pretty productive and, and, and nice lives. Those around them, not so lucky. I know uh, Arthur's dad was killed, right? So Arthur's father, who is a, a character in this film, and you see his arc going from I think at the beginning he's a great father and then he gets involved with drugs and family breaks up and then he, you know, cleans up and gets sober and he's back with the family. He is eventually, um, not in the film, but he is eventually murdered. Uh, unfortunately, robbery. 
Yeah, in a ro attempted robbery, he was murdered. Unfortunately, Arthur's little brother also murdered. Mm. So we were watching this, you know, I was watching the tail end of it with you. And there's the one scene where Arthur's mother and father and younger brother are walking around this campus, they're touring the campus. And, you know, having known this already, I was watching that going, wow, she lost both of them. Right. Yeah. And then another person who is a bit of a star of this film, which is William's brother, was also murdered. So, uh. so and, he, and he was a big star in this film because he was... Also a basketball prodigy at one point in his life and his dreams, his dreams kind of didn't come to fruition. And you and I aren't really sure what happened. We were talking about it. We're not sure if he had an injury or if, if he just quit school or exactly what caused his dreams. I think to I remember some him. I thought he said something about I thought they said something about him dropping out of school at some point. Maybe that's why he yeah. had to quit. But I mean, he just didn't have a high school team to play for anymore. Right. And that was Curtis, Curtis Gates. That was yeah. William's older brother. And he, he put a lot of his, and he kind of says it outright in the film. He put a lot of his hopes and dreams into William making it, you know, since he couldn't, yeah. but yeah. When was he murdered? I don't know exactly when I didn't, I did didn't it, see. Did the, it say anything about like, um, how, how it happened? It said, what I read was a love triangle. Oh. Something involving a love triangle. Well, Arthur's dad was killed in a robbery. I don't know about his brother, but his dad was killed in a robbery. But it's it's interesting um, knowing that, watching this at the end, when Arthur gets held up in the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and that's what made me think about how bad crime was in Chicago at the time, you know, and uh, how important it was for kids like him to get out of there. Yeah. You know, because it was a very toxic environment. You know, it's funny. I was robbed at good point in Chicago. <laughs> And uh, I don't think, you know, if you hear about people are being robbed at gunpoint and, you, and you're always happy that when somebody's not hurt because of it. But I don't think people, unless you've been through it, I don't think you realize how traumatic of yeah. an experience that is. And um, I think I suffered that. from PTSD mm -hmm. for at least a year after that happened. So um, I can't imagine what a 17-year-old kid would have going through when that happened but you know and then the fact that like he probably knew other people who had been killed in robberies and mm -hmm. his dad eventually was killed in a robbery and um it was just a you know i it, don't know it was a moment that i made a note about actually because you could see in his face when he's kind of recounting the story of yeah being you robbed, can feel it i, I feel, had flashbacks yeah uh, of how I felt. Like the kind of the, the hopeless or, or, or weak, you know, the, like when you're put in that position where you're, you're threatened and your life is in danger and, and your, your life is in the hands of somebody else completely and that feeling of hopelessness that you get and that feeling yeah. of like not being able to control the situation. It's an awful feeling and it hangs him, on you for a while, you yeah. know, and it, it has an effect on you um, emotionally and men your mental health in general, you know. Um, I had untreated PTSD because of the, my robbery and and I wasn't hurt or anything I was just held at gunpoint and robbed and you know it, it took a good year or so I was I would wake up in the middle of the night with night sweats and right. nightmares and I don't think people realize how bad it can be mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know maybe other people can handle it better than me I don't know but like I had a really rough time uh, I've it, never so. been robbed at gunpoint but I have had a, a somewhat life-threatening situation um, where I, I felt similarly and definitely felt the uh, the effects afterward, the, the lingering uh, effects of kind of, you know, panic and, and worry and things like that. Yeah. So um, uh, I want to go back to Curtis for a second because you asked me yeah. about when he died. He died in, uh, strangely, I guess not strangely, he died, he was killed September 10th, 20, 2001. So the day before September 11th, he was murdered. Wow. Um, and all the only details about it is that yeah it was a, a love triangle so 
I guess he was getting with somebody's girl. Just, or, uh, or maybe the other way around. Or yeah, one something like that happening. But yeah, so a lot of, and this makes you think about the 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 experience that these boys had, the people around them had. You know, with the three three of the men that were in, in this film that were part of these boys' lives were were murdered. And like you said, there's probably more that aren't in the film that we don't know about. Um, just what a difficult situation it was you know, in the area that they were growing up. And they say, I mean, William says in the film when he's talking to his girlfriend, his girlfriend's kind of giving him a hard time about his priority, making basketball his priority, right? He, She wants him to make her and their kid the priority. And he says, you know, my basketball is my ticket out of the ghetto. You know, it's my chance to kind of get out of here. And you can see that for both of these boys, there's that because then yeah. you have that with William, but you also have it with Arthur when he's talking about the the robbery thing. And he says, you know, when I, he goes, I want to, I want to play in the NBA. He goes, but if I don't do that, you know, I'm not going to come back here and start selling, selling drugs and, you know, robbing gas stations and stuff, you know. But so. then the filmmakers jumped in and asked him and said, do you think you'll ever turn out like your dad? And he just yeah. said, I hope not. But he didn't, you know. Yeah, but he said, I, mean, yes, I, I think it was kind of an unfair question, honestly. <laughs> well, but I think it's something that anybody in his situation would grapple with. Yeah. You know, it's like it's something that he doesn't want to. He had a chance to make a different, he had a different opportunity in life than yeah. his parents. But did. he also just, I think he knew, I think his answer to that question was pretty, pretty accurate because he was aware that that was a possibility, you know, and he wanted to do whatever he could to avoid having that become a ra- reality. Um, so he knew it was a possibility. So I thought it was an okay question. I mean, I think it's a good question to ask. I was, I, I thought this film, from a production standpoint, I thought it was an interesting. You know, it's 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 very, um, it's not pure Maisel's Brothers direct cinema, uh-huh. but it's mostly that. I mm-hmm. would say, you know, it's a lot of following, but they do a lot of like kind of tying storylines together and explaining things like with voiceover which yeah. which is a little different kind of voiceover than you normally hear it's a little bit more like um they sound like a journalist almost like just mm-hmm. a journalist just basically giving you the facts you know yeah. this is, these are the facts you mm-hmm. know um it wasn't um michael moore trying to be persuasive or a voice of god character like um ken burns mm-hmm. you know it was more like these are the facts. They're filling. I mean, yeah. I think. And they so, sort of tied things together, you know. It's kind of a television thing to do. Yeah. But like it was yeah. done in a little bit different way than even you see in television. I I watched a little bit of a, of a talk that the director gave. And he talked about how his style is not, you know, that pure direct cinema or pure verite style. Um, but it's kind of a combination. And you, you have it's a those, hybrid. I yeah. think most things are hybrids now anyway. You and, know? and I so one of the things that I didn't love about this movie is is the narration, because I felt like it kind of pulled you out of the moment in there. But when you look about it from just a logistical standpoint that you're trying to tell a story of something that's happening over the course of many years, and you got to connect a lot of dots. And also, you're, you know, there's a lot of the narration is done like during basketball games to kind of set up what where we are in the season what the stakes are going on here, how important this game is. And the only way to really do that without making a whole movie about the one basketball game is to kind of catch you up really quickly with some yeah. some facts. Yeah. So I, I got why it worked, I, I, but it did kind of feel like it would take you out of the moment sometimes. I thought it was a little jarring when it first came yeah, out because I mean. it happens in the very first 
10 minutes of the film, but it's like not at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like there needed to be a setup for it, maybe. Uh, at the I think beginning. that would have been good, like, yeah. Like, if they had, because I think there's some text that sort of sets everything up at the beginning. If they had just done that in the voiceover, like it, the voiceover when it finally comes in, like maybe five minutes into the film or 10 minutes into the film, which is not long relative to the rest of the film. Yeah, well, we should say <laughs> this film three is three hour hours long. long yeah. But, but still, like 10 minutes in, all of a sudden this voice comes out of somewhere and you're like, what? And it, it's jarring <laughs> because you don't know what it is at first. You don't know yeah. if it's a, if it's narration or if it's just like that sound or, or, or what do you do? Like when they're, you know, when you have somebody, you're interviewing somebody and you're showing like B-roll. Yeah. And then it's you an interview. It's interview. from an interview. Yeah. Right. You, yeah. They didn't do a lot of sit down interviews in here either. There's a couple of them. And, and for the most part, they weren't real like produced sit down interviews. It was kind of like they just cornered somebody for a minute and got some. Some, you know, yeah, they'd get like a coach or something, and they'd kind of, yeah, but it wasn't them. like they didn't make the, do these elaborate sit downs or you know, mm-hmm. which you know was great. I think, um, it felt very real and very honest because of that style, you mm-hmm. know, it's just following random, you know, there is a lot of verite kind of style, it's it's done in a verite style, it's not mm-hmm. exactly what the Maisel's brothers would have done, but right. But I think it owes a lot to the, what the Maisel's brothers did. You know? Well, but I don't know that you could make this movie in in like a purely Maisel's brothers style because because you have to because it's such over such a long period of time yeah. and you got to catch up to the story. Yeah, you even gotta, the Maisel's brothers didn't follow people that long, right? You know, yeah. So I, you know, I forgave them for the little like shortcomings like that that I I didn't. I think it's an amazing you know. achievement though, mm-hmm. like right. the fact that they've they were able to follow these guys for five years and really document and be able to distill it down into like three hours where you have this real experience like Mm -hmm. you feel like you saw these kids grow up at the end of it you know and i think what i really liked about this is it it is a purely and roger ebert said something a little bit similar so i'm not just trying to copy his thought process but it is just such an uh a purely uniquely american movie right this is because you have i mean you have class struggle in any country in the world, right? You have that going on. But America's pretty unique in the, the racial class class struggles that we have. So you just have these, and you know, a lot of movies are about underdogs trying to overcome the, you know, the obstacles to, to reach the goals that they want to in life. But this one really painted a, a different picture about a, a unique part of America at a particular time in America. So we we talked a little bit about this before, but you know, the, you have to think about what else was going on around this. So this was this was at the beginning of sort of Jordan mania. You know, you had um, the yeah. beginning well, of Jordan's. Um, yeah, because Michael Jordan, I think, joined the Bulls in the late eighty, like eighty eight, eighty seven. Yeah. No, it might have been I earlier. Eighty eight. I think it was eighty eight. But I know, like, right in the beginning, these boys had uh, Michael Jordan posters on yeah. their walls. Oh yeah. And then you know, so but it had, was pre Bulls like a streak. I think it was pre the domination era. Yeah. yeah. But I, that I think that would have started right around the end. Ninety three, I think, was their first championship. Maybe ninety two. We'll have to go back. Um, I was there up, for all of it. Though. It was awesome. But, but not just that. But also the. I mean, you have the basketball hysteria, which is happening in the city that this film is taking place in. But then you have all the the crime, like we we talked about. You have the the poverty, and this film. And there's a lot of talk when you read about this online. It talks about how it brings up issues of race and class and education, because um, it does bring up questions about hey, we're taking these boys from this inner city and we're giving them this great opportunity out here in this, you know, wealthy, privileged, white area. 
um, but is it affecting them well? And you know, why are they in that position in the first place? You know, shouldn't we be doing something to resolve that? I thought it was kind of weird that there was this private school in the suburbs that was willing to give like basketball scholarships to like inner city black kids. I think you know, but, and, and but I don't you know notice, what like, all the teams that they played against were the same thing, right? They yeah. were all like, I, I but think they were, those like, are parochial. Those are the parochial schools. You know, they they're Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the private schools. They weren't part of the public school system. Right. So, you, I mean, that was the problem that they ran into is that one of the kids couldn't, had to pay partial tuition. They mm-hmm. couldn't afford it. You know, right. and that's why he dropped out. So, so, but I, it's kind of weird that high school basketball was such a big thing for mm. that well, because suburban it, school. It that generates they, revenue for the school. Yeah. Right. So, if the team these, is winning, Right, then more people will come on out on a high school level, though. At That's a high the school crazy level, thing. right? Yeah, well, it even gets crazy, I think. And this is going to go off in a different direction, but um, even when they went to college, right? So, I mentioned that like the, the filmmakers gave them two hundred thousand dollars a piece after the, this film was released, and this film made a good amount of money, but they weren't allowed to take it at first because they were playing in the in the NCAA and because they're college athletes. If they accepted any money for the making of this film, they would lose their amateur uh, status yeah. and they would no longer be able to play. So, there's changing that now. I know there's there people are working on it, but that's one that's a thing that there's kind of, a uh, I think California just paid a thing uh, passed a bill that said that they have to yeah. colleges can pay um, college athletes. Right. Well, colleges can pay them, I think, but also they can get money from outside endorsements and stuff. So right now you have like these colleges just make tons of money off of these kids and the kids don't get anything for it. Now, this film is not really that because I don't think they were exploiting these kids by making the film, but they weren't even allowed to give them the money because it would ruin their NCAA eligibility requirements. So there's a lot of weird stuff going on in the sports world in terms of where the money goes and where it probably should be going but but anyway what i liked i'm going to change 91 was the first bulls champion yeah okay that's what i thought so, so they won there six was three between, in a row and then three in a row right? yeah the the two years that jordan wasn't well, yeah there, two they, years while jordan was playing baseball yeah so yeah from between 91 debts. and 98 they won six championships. Yeah. So and and I was there for all that. And it was, had Jordan not left, they probably would have won eight. Yeah. It <laughs> was incredible. I mean, it was incredible to be in Chicago in mm-hmm. that period. And that, you know, I wasn't a big basketball fan before that, but once they the Bulls start winning championships, you start paying attention to basketball because it really did bring the I mean, you see it everywhere. Any city that has a championship, it really there's nothing like a big sports yeah, franchise brings like together, yeah. brings everybody together and everybody mm-hmm. kind of has a common thing, you know. And I think that's one of the great things about sports, and that's one of the things I love about sports is that the, it, it is like that kind of neutral ground where like everybody, even people you hate, <laughs> you can be friends with yeah. for a minute yeah. around that thing, you know. Mm-hmm. So and you know we we need more of that in this world, right? <laughs> you know, so. But this so it was the height or, or the the very beginning of that, right? Because these kids would have graduated around nine. So that I think this was yeah. So the, the Bulls won their first championship that first that probably the when they were right, wrapping up this. So this is like I'm, so that kind of leads into the like the basketball mania that's going on in Chicago yeah. at the time. You know, so this is very relevant to what was happening. Pre Bulls though too, even you know, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I was surprised. I didn't see. I had no. I have no. I lived in Chicago for a long time. I had no experience with Chicago school system or Chicago sports. I didn't get any of that when I was living there. I was in my twenties and I didn't have any kids that were school age. And I didn't go, I didn't grow up in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I grew up near Chicago. So, but I didn't, re- I knew that Illinois basketball was big deal because there were big basket statewide basketball yeah. tournaments and stuff like and that. And Illinois in general is still a big basketball state. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there's not a lot else to do there. <laughs> there's you know? a lot of cornfields. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so like either 
basketball or baseball, you know? Yeah. And uh, so, and basketball is a cheap sport right. because it's a lot cheaper to build a, a gym with some basketball nets or even have a... Or just, you know, milk crates kind of thing. You know, it's a very, you don't need much to play well, a game of basketball. Well, I mean, on a school level, you know, like a the infrastructure for a basketball team is not nearly as great as it is for a football team. You know? mm-hmm, right. So, so it's cheap for schools to have basketball teams mm-hmm. it's like soccer is pretty cheap sport too you know but but uh yeah illinois is a is a basketball state for sure you know and but it, it was cool it's like seeing that footage of like the state championships and stuff mm-hmm. and how important that was to those kids you know it's a you know and that's still a big thing you know <laughs> you know you could probably right. go the those games are probably incredible too like the, i mean that's one thing i love about bas- the game of basketball is just how fast it is yeah. you know like you can go a, a game can turn on a dime yeah you you can be you can a, a, a team can come back in the last quarter from a big deficit and win a game mm-hmm. by like one point which is you know psychologically it's just like it blows your mind mm-hmm. when you're, you know if you're into it but anyway yeah it was fun watching so you mentioned like the state championship so it's towards the end of the film arthur the kid who had to leave St. Joseph's, he makes it. They win the Chicago City Championships, and they go on to, like, the state championships. They do okay there. I think they win the first round, and they're knocked out in their second yeah, game. Yeah, he got fouled out. And, yeah. yeah. Um, but he's the one that didn't go to the 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 nice white school in the suburbs was the kid who um, went, to, went to the state championships. What's his uh, – why can't I think of William's name? William. He's got your name. I should just remember. I know. That's how I remember it. <laughs> yeah. But, so, but William, you know, his I think it was his uh, sophomore year or maybe junior year, suffered an injury. and Well, he had all those knee problems. Yeah. Through it. And he had to have surgery, so he wasn't able to play for a while. And it seems like he, over time, lost a little bit of his ambition to, to be a basketball player. Now, another thing of follow-up to this story that I didn't mention was, speaking of Jordan, is... William Gates was actually recruited by Jordan to be a member of the practice squad for the Washington Wizards. Oh. And he was going to be given an opportunity to to try out for the team, but he suffered another injury. Uh, he hurt his foot and then he just officially retired from basketball. Uh, so he was so he uh, got he got a so meet he, did, he played pro ball. Well, he didn't he didn't he wasn't he, he didn't compete. He he played with pro ballers a little bit, but he didn't like Well, okay. He, he didn't play just on the Just the strict level. definition of what a professional basketball player is, somebody who makes their living playing basketball, like he made a living. I don't know basketball. if he made a living or not. Well, I don't know the details enough. So, but I would think that like, I don't know. I would think I don't know that, how like, far they would, it went. They would probably you know? pay guys to play. Sure. Sure. Pro, I don't know. I just don't know how much, practice how long he, he was on the practice yeah. squad or anything I mean, I'm like not that. saying he made a lot of money. I'm right. just saying he got paid to play mm. basketball. Yeah, and he got to meet Jordan. And the yeah. other thing, too, speaking of Jordan, as we didn't even mention yet, but the big deal about this St. Joseph school is that it was a school where Isaiah Thomas, yeah. another famous basketball player, went to school. And he was, I, I assume, they don't really break it down too much, but I assume he was, like these boys, a guy from a, a poorer neighborhood who was recruited because yeah. of his skill. I think he was probably, yeah. Yeah, I don't think he grew up in that area there Mm -hmm. but a guy who and he's kind of throughout the film he's kind of this looming figure of for everybody you know he's kind of this he's mentioned in like you know this uh he was a a big i mean well you know you have to remember i think isaiah thomas is probably one of the biggest basketball stars of that period because jordan wasn't jordan yet 
Right, right. He was, yeah, because Isaiah <laughs> Jordan didn't become Jordan until about three or four years after this. Yeah, know? Isaiah right. kind of came along a little bit before Jordan. Yeah, did. so uh, yeah, so he's a. It's and, hard to you know it's 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 hard. I mean, this is basketball pre-Jordan, so like it's a it's a, almost a different sport in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah, and there's a great shot of Arthur when he gets to meet Isaiah Thomas, and they oh, actually yeah. play a game Such together. A cute little kid, <laughs> too, cute man, little kid right? with this yeah. giant smile oh on God, his face. Yeah. He just can't stop staring at him. He's so, so great. Excited. Yeah, it was like yeah, I can't imagine what was going through that kid's head because you can feel it like looking at its face you're like this kid is in heaven right right now. yeah just, and they show that film but they show that clip a couple of times they show it in the film but then they also show it towards the end a of flashback the, yeah. yeah at the end of the credits where they're showing it's him little, like like I like how they did that. It was like kind of re- remembering where they came from. Yeah, because it know? was a little jarring to at first because you, when you're watching this, the film is basically in chronological order. So when you're watching it, you you don't really notice that the kids are getting older very much. But when they suddenly at the end of the film, they cut back to Arthur as a young kid. You're like, oh, look how young look and how cute far he was. We've come. Yeah. yeah, now he's much older and he's developing and... What do you think of that, the St. Joseph coach? I like that guy. He was like, he was a, probably one of the biggest characters in this film that wasn't in their family mm-hmm. or them, you know, like right. he was the, like the other adult that sort of follows through this whole journey, goes on this whole journey with us. You know? I don't know. So I, you know, William made some comments about him that mm-hmm. kind of, I think, influenced my opinion a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah? Like, where, like where, during the thing or afterwards? Dur- during the, the film, film. yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't read anything about the coach afterwards, so I don't know whatever happened with him or their relationship or anything. But he just said kind of like, you know, the guy, the only thing this guy thinks about is basketball, right? It's the only thing that he cares about. He's like his whole life is wrapped up into it. And uh, he, he mentions how he told the coach, you know, he, so William had a baby when he was in high school, right? Yeah. His girlfriend and the daughter are, are, are appear in this film a little bit. And he talks about, William talks about how he went to the coach and said, these other people want me to do these things. And his, his coaches told him, I think it's something along the lines of just cut them off. Just forget about them. Right. And William says, well, what kind of advice is that? Like, what kind of advice is to give it? And I, and in a way, I get where the coach is coming from. You know, I think what he's trying to say to him is stay, stay focused on the goal, right? Stay focused on the dream. Don't get distracted with. Yeah. Those things will be there. Yeah. And I kind of understand that, but I also think it was uh, an insight into that coach's personality. In a, in a good way. Yeah. You know, I think he probably meant the right thing, but it probably came across uh, in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. You know, he seemed like a typical sports coach to me. You know, uh, a guy who who just spends all the time. Yeah. I mean, he's got the Chicago accent. Like, it's like, it sounds like home to me. It mm-hmm. sounds like, you know, people I grew up with. My right. wife says I still kind of sound like that a little bit. But, <laughs> um, but he, uh, he's just got that. It's, and it's just this flat affect. Like, those guys, it's something about the way they talk. It's kind of reflects like how business like they are in some way. Uh-huh. Like, they just think very seriously about things and they're not, you know, they're, you know, they, they can cut loose, but they're, uh, you know, they're very focused guys, mm-hmm. you know. And, and you really see that when he, the scene towards the end of the film where Arthur comes back to St. Joseph's um, to, to watch a game and he meets up with his old coach. And the coach is just like what you're saying. He's so very matter of fact and business-like yeah. about it. He's like, you know, I'm really proud of you. And uh, whoever, Mr. Blah, 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 yeah. said great things about you. And, yeah. you know. I like the part where he like kind of got a little, he was starting to, I think it was at the championships when mm-hmm. when. uh William went to one of the championships or something, and he was talking yeah. about William, and he's like, I don't know if he's got the eye of the tiger. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, it was just like, <laughs> well, but I think just, he, I think he was right yeah. about it. You know I mean? That's the thing is I don't think, and William kind of says that too in the film. He, he says, you know, it used to be every day I would dream about playing in the NBA and he goes, now I don't really dream about it anymore. I still love playing basketball, but there are other things that yeah. I want to do. And I think the coach kind of saw that in him. The coach was trying to get an Isaiah Thomas out of him, right? He was yeah. trying to like build him up and make him this great basketball player so he could go on and play in the NBA. But for William, I think it was just, he had the natural, the innate ability to play basketball very well but he didn't really have the desire to um you know to focus his whole life on basketball yeah and i think that this movie kind of uh the subtext i think of the film is is uh don't follow i mean you should have dreams and you should have ideas about where you want to go in life but they aren't necessarily the obvious the things that everybody's pushing you to do necessarily Mm -hmm. and coach at the beginning made this point about like what he thinks makes a good basketball player and you know he says it's very rare to see all the things that he saw come together in isaiah thomas mm-hmm. like he was constantly looking for a kid that had all those three things you right. can get a kid to play plays really good basketball but he's not that ambitious or he plays really good or he, he plays pretty well and is ambitious but he doesn't have the heart for it to stay in it you know as right. isaiah thomas had these three elements mm-hmm. you know the heart to stay in it the skill and the ambition you mm-hmm. know and he the coach kind of explains that at the beginning and how rare it is to actually see all those things come together in the same kid and he was trying to evaluate whether he saw it in both these kids at the very beginning you know when they're both at saint joseph's you know mm-hmm. it was it was pretty interesting i think there's a lot to be taken from that and it, that you can apply to your own life you know outside of sports or anything else you know it's just like kind of finding what your niche is and mm-hmm. what you're good at and it's doing a little self self-check self-evaluation what you that you should be pursuing something is like do you have those three elements to pursue that thing right. Do you have the ambition do you have the the heart to stay with it and then the raw skill the raw skill yeah. and i think that that's not that far outside of what Ken Burns has talked about when it comes to just documentary filmmaking in general, but I think it applies to everything in life, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. You know, and he, William was in that position of where everybody behind him, with the exception of his girlfriend was pushing him to, to play basketball. And you could see like the brother, his hopes were in him, you know, and he, you know, William says one time in the film, he's like, I don't think my brother should be like, you know, relying on my dreams. And one of my favorite quotes from this whole movie, and I thought, it, and it's right at the end, it might even be the last line of the film um, before they put up the little text. But William says something about it. He goes, you know, you people used to always say to me like, hey, don't forget about me when I, when you get to the NBA. And he's like, well, what I should be saying back to them is, if I don't make it, don't don't you forget about yeah. me? You know, and it was yeah. a great point. He's you know, he realized all these people are behind me. They yeah, wanted I think me to see. But I think he realized at some point that he was trying to live up to everybody else's expectations, right. and he wasn't. He didn't have any passion for the thing himself. You yeah, know? yeah, but exactly that is he. He realized that he was he wasn't in it for the right reasons. Oh, I know what I was going to say is, and it seemed like to me that he had basically already just figured that out by the time he started going to college. So the the film basically ends with the boys going off to college and he gets a scholarship to Marquette, which is a division one basketball or a division one uh, basketball. And I think he knew already that he didn't have the ambition to play in the NBA, but he looked at it as, as well, basketball's gotten me here to college and I can just kind of ride this out to get an education and do something different with my life. And, you know, I kind of wonder if, you know, his experience was obviously a lot different than Arthur's because Arthur ended up having to go back to the Chicago public school and play basketball there and live in, you know, spend most of his time in that environment. But William had a whole full years of high school where he was living in Westchester, Illinois, you know, going to school there. He he wasn't living there, but like he was, 
was there for school every day, which is a significant chunk and of there life. for basketball practice and all. But of that you know stuff. that experience sort of probably exposed him to the idea that there was more to life than basketball. True. Like um, Arthur probably felt the pressure of like basketball was my ticket out of. You know, I, I know William says that in the film, right. but like, you know, Arthur probably had a much more severe, I guess, case of he had like, a lot, probably more pressure of. Yeah, I think I think he saw basketball as his actual way out. And I think William's experience of like going to school in the suburbs and seeing how other people live gave him a better idea that there might be other things in life besides yeah. basketball that he could pursue and make a living at or do whatever, you know, be satisfied with. Yeah. And Arthur didn't necessarily have that experience, you know. And interestingly, though, you would think that that would lead William to be of the more academic of the two, but it really seemed like he wasn't. He was the one that was struggling yeah. to get the. I don't ACT think those kids score. were very prepared to be. You know what I mean? Like they went not. to really shitty schools and they had, they, lived, they grew up in bad neighborhoods and, you know, they just weren't prepared even by at high school. Like one of them, didn't they say one of them was like still on fifth grade level or something when he started? Yeah, I think high William, school? when yeah. he first started, he, they assessed him and he was like on a fifth grade reading level. Yeah, I mean, he caught like up. I think they said he caught up really fr- quit, pretty quickly, <laughs> but like he just wasn't academic. Neither one of them were academically prepared, you know, for yeah. that level of high school. You know? And that's the, the kind of what a lot of what this story, the theme of this is, is that coming from where they came from, they weren't probably necessarily encouraged academically. You know, they didn't probably yeah. have like a, a, an environment that was focused on academics. There, it was. Well, they also had really shitty school systems and right. a lot of other pressures. I mean, just, you know, your parents can be really into education, but if they're just fighting to pay rent and keep the heat on every right. day, they're not going to be that concerned with it. Like, they're, it's, it's like, it's the hierarchy of needs, you know, it's like, it's like keep kids fed and then we can worry about your education. Right. Right. Well, there is, you mentioned that I keep the lights on and stuff. There is a short, part of this film where they show where Arthur's family, the, the power is out. Yeah. I did read that it turns out the filmmakers ended up paying to turn the power back on for uh, them. So they huh. were kind of working with them. You know, they, I guess they got to know them pretty well. They you must know, they follow have, them, yeah. You they know, follow them around for that long. And so. you hear a little bit of the rapport with the filmmakers towards the end where they, where they, in, they, <laughs> they kind of bug uh, Arthur to read his, <laughs> his, uh, his butterfly. He's, he's, in, he's in high school. He has to do a report. And Arthur says, he goes, I just, I don't like doing any of this. So I just pick the easiest topic possible. So he does a report on butterflies as like a senior, maybe. He's yeah. And his, his, the filmmakers are like, try, like egg him on to read it. And he was like, their, their banter made it seem like these are people that they, know each they other. They know really each other. Well, yeah. Know? And you could tell that throughout different scenes. Because there is a little bit of you hear the, the filmmakers asking questions and stuff. There's not a lot of that in this film. But you do hear them. You don't ever see them on camera, I don't think. But yeah, they they clearly got to know them over the over all those times. But what I think was so we talk about the you know there's the themes in this. Everybody talks about the education and race yeah. and class. But what I really love about this movie is that I think it's a the, there are other more subtle themes that are just about things like ambition and uh, failure and things like that. So you see these kids and the value of those things. Yeah, and you, you yeah. see these kids go up and down, and you. And, you know, there's one of their mothers, I think Arthur's mother makes a, a comment where she says, she goes, you know, you tell your kids all the time like that, you know, they can do achieve whatever they want. But inside, you're kind of lying to yourself because you really are thinking, gosh, you've got a really tough road ahead of you, you know? Yeah. So you see these kids with these grand ambitions and um, and you see them encounter failure you know you see william go through and you the see fact people living vicariously through them their parents mm-hmm. and their family and their brothers and sisters and stuff you know yeah i mean you see that you know both of these boys once they get to saint joseph's they both have a major setback 
right? You have William who's injured and you have Arthur who's forced to go to another school. So, you know, first they've got this, this thing happens to them, this miraculous thing that they're so good at playing basketball that they get to go to this very privileged school, you know, out in the suburbs and, and focus on, on that and improve their lives. And then both of them hit roadblocks. And so you watch them kind of cope with the, you know, going into it, they're bright eyed. They're like, I'm going to be the next Isaiah Thomas. Right. But then they hit these, these stumbling blocks. So you see how people deal with that. But then you also see the people around them, like kind of like you mentioned, but you know, around them deal with their failures, you know, right at the end, when one of them's going off, uh, going off to college, William's going off to college and his mother is making a comedy goes, I just hope he stays there. You know, I hope he doesn't quit college because she's still worrying about the yeah. struggles that he's going to have, yep. you know? So I think it's, I, th- I kind of feel bad because I, I, I feel like, um, oh, I don't feel bad, but like, it's funny that, um, I feel like Arthur's family played a much bigger role in this film than even, than anybody in William's family. You know? Yeah. Like William had, William had his brother mm-hmm. and he had, uh, but you don't really, you only see his dad once but his dad wasn't really in his life but his mom like only pops up a couple times yeah there, she's know? not a major character like they do a lot of interviews with with arthur's father and arthur's mother but yeah william they you don't i think mostly they focused on his brother he was kind yeah. of the big guy that went along yeah. with them yeah. um, but yeah, you're right you do see his mother here and there but she's not she might not have just wanted to participate as much in the film but it, it could have been that or what my thought was just because arthur was actually with his family you know he was he was living in in the city with his family and meanwhile a lot of the stuff that they probably filmed for william was out at the school it was out yeah. at st joseph's yeah, right it's, yeah and that's where you know his brother would be out there supporting him and stuff like that so i couldn't tell i i'm almost certain this was all shot in 16 millimeter but like there's some beta 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 yeah i did look it up beta sp does that make sense to you yeah is that a thing yeah okay. it was the broadcast standard or uh, okay yeah it was yeah, all set a shot on that and then yeah it, i thought it looked like video in parts but i couldn't tell if it was just like a transfer like a bad like it something was shot on film put on video and digitized mm-hmm. like from that bad video copy right. or if it was actually shot on video but like beta cam i mean it doesn't i mean it didn't look terrible but like yeah i mean it does have a very video look to the whole thing and it's been restored i'm mm-hmm. sure you probably watch i'm sure we both probably watched the restored version but yeah i think sometime around the 20th anniversary um i don't remember who got they involved did a digital but, restoration yeah they yeah. digitally restored it i think up to 35 millimeter oh. um which is probably what we saw was oh the, so they probably so we probably saw beta cam transferred to 35 and then transferred to digital yeah okay all right well i mean it didn't look bad it looked fine i was surprised i mean it, uh i mean if it was shot on video yeah i mean you look at video stuff that was shot back then um and it's it those tapes don't last very long, number one. But right. yeah, it's just like even video from back then is just hard to hard to keep keep looking good all these years later. Yeah, so the December 2013 Sundance Film Festival, that's who got involved in the restoration, which this film actually premiered at the Sundance Film Festival hmm. um, and it was kind of a you know, runaway hit. Did you read much about the, uh, the Oscar controversy surrounding this film? No. So there's, there's... I mean, I may remember it from the time, but... There's some history about this film and actually another one that we watched um, that we've already talked about, which is Crumb. And those came out back, you know, back-to-back years. You know, you, we talked about the praise that Roger Ebert gave this film, right? Yeah. And this film was not nominated for an Oscar for the documentary category. Hmm. Um, and this film not being 
nominated this film and crumb because they were both really controversial that neither of them were nominated and this led to a changing in the rules for the way the documentaries are nominated for oscars because there was so much outrage that this film wasn't nominated and apparently the story was that what would happen is whenever they were they had this method that they would gather like the oscar voters in a room and they would screen films for them and all of them would have a flashlight and whenever they got kind of bored with a the film they would turn on the flashlight and once a majority of the flashlights were like placed on the screen they would cut the film off and they'd go on to something different so apparently this film only made it in 20 20 minutes they didn't get to watch even 20 minutes of it and this is a three-hour film and then there was some more controversy about the way that people were voting is you had to rank films on a, on a, a category of zero to 10. And what people were doing was they were just any film, they would pick basically their five films that they wanted to be nominated and they just rank all those 10 and then all the rest of them zero, which would just skew the numbers, right? It's basically a binary system. It's like, you know, on or off. So, so after this film, there was so much out outrage that it wasn't nominated. And, you know, I guess it wasn't really even given a chance because it just got turned off within 20 minutes um, that they changed the rules for how they nominate documentaries. Oh. Following yeah, what are the film? rules now? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't I know the rule. Know I mean, I know that like you have to. I there are a number of, like technical criteria for becoming considered for an Oscar. One of them is you have to four wall it, meaning you want to four walling means like you buy the venue and, and the only way. So uh, the film has to open in a certain number of theaters and it has to play in a number a certain number of. Uh, of um, festivals that are Oscar uh, qualifying. qualifying festivals. Uh -huh. So like St. Louis International Film Festival is an Oscar qualifying festival, actually. And there's a certain number of Oscar qualifying festivals you have to play in, maybe only one, I don't know. And then you have to play in like four major markets. Hmm. So a lot of times to get to that level of four major markets, they'll four wall the, vi the, the film, meaning that the district is, if, and it's usually if you're going to get if you're going to get considered for an Oscar, you have to usually you have a distributor involved and the distributor will actually pay to have the film. They'll rent a theater out in New York, or rent the theater out in L.A. and maybe in Austin or Denver, or Chicago or whatever. And as long as you play in four markets and then play an Oscar qualifying festival, then you can be considered for an Oscar. Um, and there's probably a couple other things too. So the film just basically needs to be shown five times. You could theoretically, yeah, just open, yeah, have three, four screenings maybe. Yeah. I think that even festival plays though count as playing in certain markets. Though. Oh, okay. So like if you were in like every major film festival, you'd probably be considered for qualified to be an Oscar. You know, like if you played like New York and the Chicago Film Festival and the St. Louis Film Festival and the LA Film Festival that would probably count as your, your every four major places, your yeah. four markets right. or whatever. So I don't know. It's a kind of dumb. We're coming up on Oscar season now, so I wonder if we should talk about some like the Oscars at all or even well. The, I I first of all I'm not a fan of the Oscars. I don't like them um, in general. Yeah, but obviously the big a big thing is that there are documentaries nominated. Um, you know, a category for documentaries in the Oscars. I think the Oscars are different every year. I used to like kind of have a general negative attitude towards the Oscars, but I think it is interesting to see, even if you're not into how Oscars are picked or how they're nominated or anything like that, it's, it is kind of a, it is kind of a cultural touchstone to see what at least the industry thought was important that year. Yeah. That's why I don't, <laughs> so, that's why I don't like the Oscars because I don't like the industry. I don't like, I don't like watching a bunch of millionaires congratulate each other. I don't know. Yeah, no, too, I get that. I mean, I, mean, I, I totally, I totally understand that. I, I just think that like you can't like, 
I just think it's a cultural touchstone that you can't really necessarily ignore. Right. You know, but so. we have watched one already that's been nominated, which is American Factory. Yeah. That's nominated for best documentary. It'll probably feature. win. Yeah, well, I, I I've said it I haven't seen I, I haven't again, seen but, what else was nominated. Did you? Uh, I have. I have seen. I haven't seen any of them. I haven't watched any of them. Yeah. But I, I read the the summaries of the different films that are nominated. I'll have to look it up. Maybe we'll talk about that at some point. Yeah, we probably should just cover those. But but before we get too far off topic, I want to go back to this film. Yeah. I asked. I started this whole thing by asking you if you think it lives up to Roger Ebert's praise of it, mm-hmm. and you said not really. And I would kind of agree with you. I love this film. I think it's great. But I also would agree that it's it's not. I don't think it's quite as great as Roger Ebert thought yeah. it was. I think it was influential. Mm-hmm. And I think that like uh, the only reason you see things like ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries, which are all almost all of them are very well made yeah, documentaries and good. totally a worthwhile. Even if you're not into sports, these are topics we might have to tackle sometime. Too. The, the 30 for 30 series of ESPN. I don't think a lot of non-sports people would necessarily understand how good these films are. Yeah, they're very because, well because I think a lot of non-sports people would just they would pass be turned them away up. from it because it's an ESPN. Just because it's and... an ESPN. But I would I think that anybody that's in the good films will like the yeah. 30 by 30, 30, 30 for 30 de- yeah. uh, series. Um because it, it covers a lot more than just sports. The two um, po- the two S- But I feel like this Pablos. that series, that ESPN series that documentary series and ESPN owes a lot to this film. I think that that this film probably had a big influence on ESPN realizing that there was a market for that kind of content. And there's a great story behind sports. You know, there's oh just like anything there's always sports are natural natural story. It's a natural story that happens in real time. That's the whole idea behind a game. A game is a story. Any game a board game is a story. It starts one place and ends in another place. This is the argument. I'm not a big, big sports guy, but I like sports. But this is the argument I always make to people that are like you know, that don't understand sports and people think it's just a bunch of meatheads or something like that. Is that it is so what? But but the thing is what is what is uh, appealing about sports is the same thing that's appealing about anything else is it's drama yep. right like if you it doesn't matter and i and i have this big theory about life that's exactly that, right that's that, exactly that the right, only yeah. thing people are really attracted to is drama so like if you're into sports you're into sports because of the drama of it yeah. if you're into like dungeons and dragons you're into it because of the drama and the storytelling in it yep. if you're into like celebrity gossip it's the same thing you like to follow the drama and that's all that sports is it's just you know i was we were watching this film and i, I every just, game is a story yeah like, i mean every baseball game is a story every basketball game is a story and it's like there's ups and downs there's drama there's there's uh moments when you think all is lost and then there's and then, that yeah, thing there's at the end where hope, it, yeah. oh it did we, we pulled watching, it out like I was it watching happened. just one part of this film where uh i think arthur's playing in a game it's very quick and he goes up to take a shot and the the shot kind of rolls around the rim a little bit and so you have that moment of anticipation of is it going to go in is it not going to go in and my thought was just like that's just drama right there yeah. right they're just cre- it's creating tension and that's what's so attractive it's that to a moment him. where is it or isn't it right? Is you it, know, is this moment going to be followed by <laughs> exhilaration and excitement, or is it going to be followed by disappointment? Yeah. So it's and just it's that emotional um, roller coaster that happens, and um, I think it's I think it's really um, all the you know all my all the like probably big famous writers of the 20th century are all big sports fans too. Mm, a lot of them, know? yeah. Um, you know, baseball was a big one for a lot of them, but like you know. Um, I don't know. I, I can't think of like Hemingway was in the like, you know, bullfighting and right, you know, <laughs> horse racing and stuff like that, you know. And well, because again, I think those people, you know, they understand that Kerouac was in the baseball. Was he? Yeah, mm. he was a huge baseball fan. But it just shows you that you know that 
sports is a drama. Sports is a yeah. a story being told, like you said, in real time. You know, it's no, not much different than you going literally to a play. don't know what's going to happen yeah. from moment to moment. Yeah. Nobody does. That's the thing that's attractive about it, I think, you know. But so my one criticism, I think, about this film, the one thing that I think would keep me from making it, you know, as high of giving it as high as praise as Roger Ebert is, I think it's too long. I think it, I think, I think it, it is too. I think yeah. it could have been cut down. I think you could have made this. There's I have I didn't, so even two and a half hours. I think would have been okay. Three hours. I think was a little bit too long. Played this played on PBS, and mm-hmm. I think when they played it on PBS, they broke it up into three parts. I think it was a three night event, as I recall. Okay. Um, I think it was an hour a night, which I think this would be a great way to watch this film. I think if you broke it up, if you if you want to watch this, unless you have three hours to sort of commit to watching a drama. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't think that, uh, um, you know, today, the, these days, because documentary series are very popular, I think if you would have taken this film and made it into four hours, lengthen it, but in in one hour episodes, you know, yeah. like one hour for freshman year, one hour for sophomore year, so on and so forth, I think it could have been structured a little bit differently. But as, it's, as it stands, it's just a one piece three-hour documentary i just yeah. think it if you wanted to make a feature-length documentary of this i think it should have been cut down um even like i said two and a half hours or you know i understand maybe it's got to be a little bit longer than your average runtime but i just think there was a lot of moments in this where you just go we don't we know like we've we we, we know that this coach gives this kind of speech all the time you yeah could probably move the story forward a little yeah faster. i think I would like to see a, like a shortcut of it. Mm-hmm. I would like to see. Um, I don't know. What to, I mean, I don't think the filmmakers are open to doing this necessarily. No. But I think it would be fun to like uh, see what this film looks like in an, like an hour format, like cutting it down Ooh, to an hour. hour. I think I think an hour would be tough. Two hours, mm-hmm. I think, would be doable. I I just think there's a lot of fat. It in would there. change the story mm-hmm. a lot. I think you'd have to focus a lot more. Um, but I think you could tell a very compelling story in an hour mm-hmm. with this film, with the material that's in this film. You know, and you know what? These days, uh, you know, since there is a three-hour cut of it out there, like if some ambitious, like if I were a film teacher, if I taught a film class, a film editing class, you know, that might be like an assignment I might yeah. give my students. It's like take hoop dreams, make it into an hour. Let's see what you do with it. All right, wow, that would, that would be, be a good, good exercise. Editing for exercise, yeah. yeah, yeah. I still disagree. I think an hour would be too short, but. Two hours, I think you could get it to work. But even that, I mean, even picking and choosing which hour to cut out of the film would be a challenging exercise, yeah. you know, in, in storytelling and in story structure and yeah. stuff. But that's really my only criticism. That and the voiceover. Yeah. You know, I didn't love the voiceover, but I get it. I mean, they kind of had but to the do it. the voiceover worked. It was very functional. It wasn't exactly. like, that's it wasn't good. meant to be, um, you know... It wasn't a piece of artifice, you know, like it is in some films. Like, I feel like uh, in Ken Burns, you know, the voiceover gives a texture to the film and a yeah. feel to the film, the way Ken Burns uses voiceover. In this film, it was just very functional. It, a very it, factual it, kind it, of thing, yeah. It it sounded, like a, it sounded like what a sports journalist might, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like a sports writer might... Uh, read and you know there's i i love sports journalists you know i think that writers of people that write about sports can be awesome writers i think you see the the, best journalism in the world is done around sports do you remember the guys the sports journalists that are in this film like there's oh those guys guys yeah smoking cigars that was a public television um show yeah it it was like like a um it was kind of like our donnie brook that we have in st louis on channel nine um but it's like a uh 
base like a sports writers roundtable. And it's like those guys are old too. They all look like they're in their seventies. They're smoking cigars. Yeah, and smoking cigars about, yeah. on here. Yeah. But, oh, let's talk about just that. A couple of moments like that that caught me is you also have a shot of uh, of the coach. It's funny because this clearly is a one of the things that I like watching these kind of movies is it takes you to a certain time and place yeah. in the world, and you see the coach like holding a lighter. So he oh, yeah. Coach well, is like he's smoking, smoking a pipe in a later oh, scene. Oh, was he too. smoking? Oh, yeah. that's right. He was in an interview. But then you've got, and you and I both got a chuckle out of this, is one of the the coach at, I think it was Mineral Area, um, the the oh. the school. And he's got an office. In Missouri. In Missouri. I don't even know where that is. I do. I looked, I looked it up. It's near, down near Farmington. So okay. that won't mean anything. To, if you're not from Missouri yeah. listening, that won't mean anything. But it's not that far Mineral from where Springs we are. Mineral Springs or something. Something like that. College, Mineral yeah. Area, I think was what it was called. But um, the coach has a poster up. There's like a, a you know late 80s, early 90s picture of like a beautiful woman in a bikini. And it has a play on the Nike logo, uh, slogan. It says, just undo it. Yeah, I was and like, it, what the fuck? It looked like almost like a soft porn kind of poster or yeah. something and in it's his in his it's in the coach's office yeah. while he's sitting there talking to arthur there's about how no i want you to come way, to school there's no way you could get away with i that know you, like, you would nobody would put kicked up out that. for harassment oh, very yeah quickly. yeah but it's, that was hilarious yeah so. well there's a kid i mean just if you talk about things of the time there was that scene where i think it was after graduation or something arthur makes an appearance at St. Joseph's mm -hmm. for I think Williams graduation or was it after a game? I can't remember which it was. I think but it was like, after a game. He shows up and like all, it's all these kids that he knew from years before. Yeah, when he went to St. Joseph's for like six months or something, and they all knew him obviously because he had made a reputation as a basket state level basketball star. Um, so it was like kind of a little bit of a homecoming for him to go back as a right. senior. And but it was funny, like he runs in these kids in the lunchroom. And there's this one kid that's got like a cigarette. It's not lit, but he's like got a cigarette, like he's about to go outside and smoke or yeah. something. Yeah. And this it's funny watching because this is a little bit before my high school era. Like yeah, it's a little bit after me, right? So right, right when this they would have been graduating it was around the time I would have been starting high school. Yeah. And and yeah, back even back they then, were we starting were, high school like the year after I graduated high right. school. So like they're right in between us. Yeah, they're so. right in between us. But yeah, it's it is funny looking back and seeing some of those moments that, that put you in the my the high place school. We had a senior lounge, and you could smoke in the senior lounge. Well, my high school in in the high school. I went to an alternative high school, and uh, they had a rule that was no smoking here. But I was in the alternative high school the first year it was open, and we didn't care about the rules, so we just all smoked outside the door, and we're like. Hey, uh, you can't kick us all out of school. Yeah. So there were only a hundred kids in the high school, so we would all go outside and smoke. Wow. And yeah, we had a senior lot. You could smoke on camp. Or they had designated smoking. Areas. That's unbelievable in a high school. In a high school, and we had, <laughs> uh, yeah, we had a senior lounge that you could smoke in. You could smoke in the building in That's the senior lounge. So you students could inside, and the it was building. only seniors that were allowed in there. Oh, like we really? had a TV and a soda machine and a pool table, and you could. Did like, you get you like had juniors a, trying to sneak in? And well, stuff? like you know, in your senior year, you have most of your credits, and you might have a couple of hours, like a couple of periods where you have open. You can't leave the school. You have to be at school, mm -hmm. and you would normally do like a study hall or something. Those periods. Well, we had the senior lounge. If you're a senior, you could go hang out in the senior <laughs> lounge those periods. <laughs> so well, so we've made progress as a society, and I, I guess I would, so. I would count I that know. as a good. I kind of feel like. Maybe we Kids lost a little bit of the character. Yeah. But anyway, I I don't know how much more you have to say, but I I love this film. I mean, I yeah. do I do have my. I think it's totally worthy, it. and I think I think I think people should um, 
I think people should watch this film, but you know, be aware it's three hours. So like maybe break it up into a couple nights, a couple, three nights. I did that. I watched totally most of it, it last yeah. night and then more of it this morning. It, it, it is a long commitment. It's worthwhile though. Yeah. Very worthwhile. So other films that are like this, do you think that people should check out? Well, the one that I, Hoosiers. I, I said it already, I haven't seen Hoosiers. That was a, it came it's out roughly a around the time. No, it was okay. a, it was a, it was a feature, you know, dramatic film, but also a basketball film. Not too many basketball right. films, you know. Um, there's basketball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think that um, you know the one that I I mentioned that's and it's really only similar in that in the way that it was filmed is the is the it's Richard Linklater right who did Boyhood. Yeah, Boyhood. You know, this movie also reminded me of Spellbound a lot. Yeah. You know, it had that same. It was about 10 years. Which Spellbound is one we've already discussed. Yeah, Episode Spellbound. two, yep. I think, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it, I mean, it's also about school competition. Sure. Yeah, okay. And, yeah. and uh, you're following these kids through a process. You know, you don't. they don't follow them as long as they follow um, the Hoop Dreams kids. But, you know, in a lot of ways, it's a very similar film, I think. You know, just because it's about, um, and, and it sort of covers a range of, Spellbound was a little broader in that it co covered a range of economic kids from different economic backgrounds, right. different racial backgrounds. But it, but that's also about ambition, and it's, it's about also about ambition and like what you're, yeah, and failure, you know, yep. and, and facing up all the all the things that competition sort yeah. of, you know. I think you brought it up, but the one that I was going to mention, and I had thought about it too, was because this is really the first, unless you count Spellbound, I think, probably the first like kind of sports centered documentary that we've talked about, um, and I think like you said. Sports is a natural story. There's always good, interesting stories there. But I was going to mention the 30 for 32. Yeah. Um, the two Escobars, I think it's called, or two Pablos, I can't remember. There's obviously. a bunch of them. They're so but, good. But uh, I haven't seen a lot of them, but I saw that one. There was um, one about money, great. like about how they make, like it has, there's one about um, money and, and sports. Uh, mm -hmm. That's all about, and they follow like three or four different players. I've seen it. I've seen it. Yeah. That one was really and good. And you see how they spend their money and, and how, how they're kind of wasting And how they try, to, they try to intervene to keep them from like losing their money. Cause mm -hmm. you can end up, somebody gives somebody with the wrong business sense, a shit ton of money. They could end up like being in serious debt. Right. Well, you, you think know? about a guy um, like these two guys from this film, you know, we mentioned they weren't necessarily, they weren't, ambitious academically yeah so when if you know they got signed to the nba and suddenly one day they go from not ever having money to having a couple million dollars in the bank they probably don't know the right way to handle that situation so yeah. and that's what happens with a lot of these guys that go into the into professional sports so i i've seen that yeah that's, that's yeah a that's a really one. good one but another, those, another yeah. sports documentary and one we we might want to consider talking about at some point because i would love to talk about it. it's one of my favorite baseball films of all time okay um it's called the uh, battered bastards of baseball and it's on netflix did you see it hold on i i, I battered if we want to do another bastards. sports one i would love to do that hold on i think i've heard of it but i don't know that i have watched so it. good it's one of my favorite um and, and, and you know it's a real story it's a true story about a minor league baseball team Oh, okay. No, I don't think I've seen it. So good. I, I'm just kind of it's looking. One of my it up favorite here. films. So I don't know. Maybe we'll. That, I'm going to put that on the on the wall for okay. like something we should cover in the future. Yeah, like because there is. I thought about that, this too. Just watching this one, there is a whole genre of like sports, sports documentaries. documentaries. Yeah. Um, and there's Bobby did one. 
Yeah, our friend uh, did a basketball one, yeah. which I thought about that too when I was watching this. I was like, I wonder if he was inspired by Hoop Dreams to go out yeah. and, and make, because this is about he basketball. did one about women's college basketball. Yeah, women's yeah. college basketball. Um, I don't know if we can call it. I can't remember the name of it. Gray Seasons is the name. Gray of it. Seasons, yeah. Gray, Gray Seasons, Seasons, yeah. Which is available. I uh, think Robert Herrera. Yeah. I don't know if we're supposed to call him Bobby or not, but he goes by. We call him Bobby. Yeah, I call him Bobby, but he goes I think by he's Robert. He's been credited as Herrera. Bobby Herrera. Probably now, but, or Herrera, if I can pronounce it correctly. But yeah, so watch Bobby's documentary, Gray yeah. Seasons. It's available, I think, for on Netflix, or not Netflix, but Amazon I think Prime. ESPN like, picked that up at some point. Did they? Yeah, I think mm. so. I think it might have ran as an ESPN film. But it's available some places, so. All right, cool. All right. All right.